to the end of another season here, folks, so this is your friendly reminder that if you like what you hear, you can help support our podcast numerous ways. You can become a regular contributor and patron. Head to patreon.com forward slash two scientists and for as little as a dollar per episode, you'll have our eternal gratitude. Alternatively, you can just buy us a coffee by heading to ko-fi.com forward slash two scientists. We appreciate, though we face fierce competition when it comes to earning other people's dollars, so if you really can't afford any of the above, you can pay us in kind by going to Apple Podcasts and reviewing this episode or our whole show. Speaking of our show, let's go on with it, shall we? Welcome to Scientist Listeners to our podcast. Our guest today is Catherine Drabiak. And normally we we call this podcast Two Scientists because it's usually me chatting to another scientist, but you are not. Can you tell us how you kind of tie into the whole science field? Sure. So I'm actually um, a legal academic. I'm trained as a JD, as an attorney, um, and I've spent my career in, uh, in academia. So working at a medical school, now working at um, USF School of Public Health, um, and also um, in, the, in the College of Medicine. And so my work has intersected a lot of issues in science. Um, and so that's, that's how I've um, come to be in, in the scientific community. Yeah. So as you say, you're an assistant professor at the College of Public Health at that's USF. Right. Um, so what does an average day look like for you? Every day is a little bit different. So um, I, I research, I teach, um, and then I do some work in the community. So the, um, the teaching um, is usually uh, depends how interested the students are and how engaged um, a variety of different classes Um, I spend a lot of time reading huge stacks of paper which I think is fun and exciting most people don't um, and writing a lot Um, and then I'm also uh, I work as a medical ethicist at Florida Hospital Tampa Um, and so all of those um, tricky ethical issues that come up when people are in a hospital of um, who makes the decision at the end of life um, when is treatment appropriate Um, if there's family members arguing I kind of help with the committee that's there work out and mediate some of those disputes that happen okay so your work obviously necessitates you talking to scientists a lot Um, Now, not having trained as a scientist yourself, how easy do you find it to understand their research and how good are they at explaining it to you? Well, it's kind of like different languages, I have to say, because I, uh, when I when I talk and I give presentations, um, like I said, it's not only teaching, but I give presentations um, to uh, lots of different audiences. So um, attorneys, um, clinicians, physicians, and then the scientists. And what's funny about the scientists is I almost feel like um, sometimes there's this sense of, well, this is really fun and cool. What does the law have to do with it? Um, Um, And so um, a a big example I think that a lot of people might be able to relate to, um, in Florida, um, we have a lot of signs all over for um, regenerative medicine clinics um, because uh, people either want to look younger, um, you know, fill in wrinkles or, um, you know, regenerate and feel um, younger in, in their body. Um, And so several years ago, I was doing work looking at some of these regenerative medicine clinics um, and basically the products that um, that they were promoting, how they were regulated by the FDA, and some of the safety risks, the very real safety risks that that these products posed. And when I was giving some presentations on this material um, to an an audience of scientists, um, it was a very chilly reception um, because at, at, um, at the time, they thought, well, this, this should move forward. This is exciting. Um, you know, it's, we hear these buzzwords like, you know, great therapeutic promise and all of these other things. And I said, well, well, wait a minute. The law is really clear that there's a lot of businesses that are breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, see, see no evil. The law doesn't apply. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a different language and you kind of have to 
bridge. <laughs> There's a lot of financial interests involved. Um, so part of what I do is try to tell a story to bridge why people should care and why the law should apply to protect vulnerable people. Absolutely. So there's, um, there's a great quote from Jurassic Park that I had to look up for this. And it's a, a point where um, Jeff Goldblum says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Absolutely. And I think that's especially pertinent to some of the research that's taking place right now. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I'd like to bring that up. So if we Google you, 23andMe comes up an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us why that is. Um, so what? Uh, a few years ago, I, uh, I was looking into this particular company. And first, I have to say, on the radio, on the way here, um, there was a commercial. Ryan Seacrest was doing a commercial for 23andMe to buy as a Christmas present um, just five minutes ago, you know, when I was driving here. So it's, um, it's all over, it's in Walmart, um, you know, for sale everywhere, this particular product and similar products like it. Um, and so what I was interested in, um, a few different things, you know, number one, what does the product promise? Um, and from a regular person's standpoint, if I'm going online to buy something, it's not like buying a pair of shoes on Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Where if I can decide they don't fit, I can return them. Um, it's a very different proposition of buying something online where you're giving a company your gen genetic information, potentially health information, um, and getting health information in return, you know, genetic test results for a variety of different traits and conditions. And so it's like research and a consumer transaction all in one. So what I was interested in is looking at, do people actually know what it is that they're agreeing to? Because we all search online and we're looking at, you know, different things on the internet and we click the box, yes, I agree. Terms and conditions, yes, I agree. I certainly don't read them, right? I just click because I want to visit whatever the website is. Um, so I spent time actually reading these dozens and dozens of pages of documents, which I thought was fun. Um, again, most people don't. That's why I do what I do. Um, and um, what's interesting is that because it's a company, it operates outside of the way that most entities would normally collect this type of information, either health information or genetic information. Like if you're going to your doctor and getting some type of health information, or if you're participating in a research study, there's laws in that context to protect people to make sure that they understand and they know what they're agreeing to, but not in this context. So to be clear, the company's not doing anything wrong. They're fully within what they're allowed to be doing legally, but it's a big loophole. Um, and so that's what I was interested in is what are they actually allowed to do in pretty much anything with people's genetic information and they can change their policy at any time. So right now, a number of companies say, we're not gonna sell it, don't worry, we're not selling your information, but they can also change that with a post on their website or just an email telling you, we're now going to sell your information. So there's this asymmetry of power and of bargaining power really between what the consumer knows and is doing and what the company knows and is doing. Yeah, and um, I guess we need to point out the caveat that it's not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of this kind of data collection can actually be useful for helping improve health and medicine. Um, but obviously in this case, if they're not bound by the same laws that other companies would be, mm -hmm. uh, if they're not regulated by, for example, the FDA, then that's something we've got to be wary of. And, and um, absolutely. So um, there was, for a long time, some issues with the FDA. And now um, 23andMe and other companies are compliant. So they've shown the FDA that their tests are accurate, that they're giving people an accurate result. So that's a good thing. Um, and if we look at some of the other good things, um, you know, like, like we mentioned, it is compiling all of this information. And so there is 
positive sentiment that this might lead to um, better understanding of genetic diseases or better treatments or cures for particular diseases. So scientific research is a good thing in principle, right? We just want to make sure that people understand that they're participating in research mm -hmm. and what that entails. Yeah. So David's already asked us a question and he says, I've already sent my spit to 23andMe. Is there any point in going to the website and deleting the information or is it too late? So that's a good question. And at the time when I had researched this, um, you can request to delete your information, but they can keep it for a period of time um, based on different policies that the company had internally. And this was a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure now what what corporate policy is. Um, so you can always request something. It doesn't mean it can be done or would be done. Yeah, so there's also a kind of sidebar to this. So I've seen that you've published some work or um, articles on breast cancer specifically mm -hmm. and the fact that people can look out for the genes. I think it's BRCA um, genes that are, increase the risk of breast cancer. Um, and also that you have issues surrounding this in the sense that people might get panicked that they're going to get breast cancer because they don't actually understand what the data is telling them because they don't have a kind of professional voice telling them this is what the, the data means. So we worry about that sometimes. Number one, if you're getting some type of genetic test from one of these online services without the doctor, the middleman, to kind of interpret those results or a genetic counselor to interpret the, the results for you. But even if a physician is interpreting the results, sometimes there's still that panic um, based on some of the research that I've done. And I think anybody, right? Everybody kind of has somebody in their family who's ever, who's either been through breast cancer or knows somebody who's been through breast cancer or any type of cancer. And it's natural to have that panic. And so I think you need that middleman to kind of interpret what the results mean, that it's not either you have cancer, it's you have an increased risk. And even early um, cases of cancer in some instances may not progress. And so some of the research that I did was actually looking at um, women who were diagnosed as um, DCIS or early stage. Um, yeah, can you explain this? So er, early, yes. early stage, um, basically stage zero or stage one cancer. And so it's something that's not malignant. It's not harmful at that point, And it may not progress to being harmful. Um, and so some of what my research was looking at is that intervening at that point um, is more to assuage the, the patient's anxiety than actually provide clinical benefit. And a lot of the therapies um, can, can provide real harm and sometimes disabling lifelong harm. Yeah. And so it's a, an important thing to understand what the risks and the benefits are. Yeah. Um, so David asked another question, which was that this was a, a kind of interesting outcome from, uh, I believe there was a, a criminal case um, and this is why he asks this, but his siblings have not sent anything to 23andMe or any other website, yet these companies know enough from the samples that they know something about those people. Where is the consent there? So that's what's an odd thing about DNA is that you're not just providing information about yourself, it's your whole family. And I think we've all seen you know, bizarre cases in, um, in the news that have happened, like the Golden State Killer case, or even fictitious cases like in Law and Order, where it's, you know, five half-siblings that you find out, um, you know, these, these kind of bizarre stories. And so that's something that actually, if I've had people, um, you know, just students or other professors say, hey, should, should I get this test? That's one of the caveats, along with the many, I always give is, think about it's not just your information it's your whole family's information that could potentially be connected to you um, and if you make the decision then that's you know now you have that information and you can know um, and make the decision knowing that information so it's it, it's complicated and it's the same type of situation um, 
returning genetic test results that might implicate another family member. And the, the family member might say, I'm not in contact with my brother or sister. I'm not telling that person. And then the doctor's thinking, well, what do I do? Do I, you know, should I warn this person? And that's actually an example. And one of my classes I give to my students you know, should the doctor tell the sibling? Does they have, you know, does he have a duty to tell the sibling? You're at risk for something. Yeah. So knowing what you know, have you taken any of these tests? <laughs> it's a funny question. So um, knowing what I know, um, I, I've not taken any tests, but I'm a bit of a technological Luddite. Um, I don't have a smartphone. I don't have, I don't text. Um, and it's because I know so much about technology and how it tracks us and everything else that I'm kind of a dinosaur. <laughs> so you've done the kind of risk benefit analysis for I yourself. I have, I have, and I've decided, you know what, I, I've looked at from the public health angle, all of these things that, that I want to do to try and make my life longer of, you know, eating, eating healthy foods and exercising and sleeping and trying to minimize my stress, which isn't hard, you know, can be hard sometimes, but that's, you know, I, that's what I do rather than look at what my genetics are. I'm just mm-hmm. going to maximize whatever it is I've got. Yeah. Um, frankly, you can't do anything about your genetics anyway, at least yeah. not right now, but yeah. this is, this is another topic of conversation. Um, for people who don't know the story, there was recently um, something that came out about a Chinese scientist who says that he has used CRISPR to um, alter the genetic information in two baby girls that have been born in China. So can you first of all give us a, a kind of brief overview as to what CRISPR is and what this particular scientist did and why it's been causing such outrage? Sure. So um, in a a very general sense, CRISPR is um, the newest iteration of a genome editing technology. So the idea is um, in in this particular case, in a human genome, um, to either edit, modify, or delete particular sections of the gene um, to either um, eliminate disease Um, treat some type of disease or enhance, uh, make a particular modification. So blue eyes, brown eyes, potentially in the future, um, something else. And right now it's been talked um, a lot about in terms of um, uh, preventing particular diseases like monogenic single gene diseases um, or treating infertility. And in the case um, that was in the news recently, this particular researcher in China um, was attempting to modify the CCR5 gene to increase um, the infant's resistance to HIV infection. And there was actually an article in the New Scientist that went into pretty specific detail of how there was shortcomings in the experiment. You're nodding and probably read it, um, which I think was really instructive in understanding um, some of the the problems that happened when he had designed the experiment in a particular way and it didn't turn out the way that he anticipated in terms of what actually happened to these genes um, that that he he tinkered with essentially. And the reason that there was a lot of outrage from a legal and ethical perspective is um, not in China where this was done, but in lots of other countries around the world, um, there's this kind of global consensus that it's not the appropriate time now, some people say never, um, but it's not the appropriate time now um, to genome, um, to proceed with genome editing for human embryos that would be implanted and create an actual child. And so in this case, there was two um, baby girls um, that were referred to as Lulu and Nana that were born. And, um, and so there was quite, uh, quite a firestorm in the media following this. And what's also, I think, fascinating about this story is we think of science kind of being in um, prestigious peer-reviewed journals and this scientist announced this um, as a publicity stunt on YouTube, <laughs> of all places. Um, 
And the other thing that I want to point out in the YouTube video, there was very specific crafty language that he used um, in terms of how he's describing the procedure. Because when you think about the way that you're hearing something, a particular technology, the question that I ask is, are you being fed something, spoon-fed something, to um, want to accept it? And in this case, he talked about curing, um, curing disease, preventing HIV transmission, um, and he talked about the procedure as gene surgery. And when we think about something like that, we think, well, of course it works. Who doesn't want a surgery to make a healthy baby, to make a happy family? And it's, it's really, it's not a fair comparison. Um, it's uh, a highly experimental and highly risky procedure. Yeah, and from a biologist's point of view, the whole story was a nightmare for me to read because he did not publish this. He, like you say, he just kind of announced it to people. Mm -hmm. He didn't get support, he didn't get ethical approval. Um, and he claimed that the parents knew exactly what was happening and apparently when you look back some of them only had a high school level of science education so there's no way they understood what was going on um, he had eight parents lined up and he's also not an expert in the field mm -hmm. this is not what he trained to do so i mean i honestly i was tearing my hair out reading this um but the problem is then that if you're not in uh if you're not in the kind of society that's going to outright, I, I suspect if he, if he was in the US, he'd be in prison right now. Um, I mean, can't say that for sure. Or would he? That's I don't a think question. so. You don't think so? No. Interesting. Yeah. And why is that? Because I would assume that the approval that we, you would need to do human studies and so on, um, that this is not a he hasn't he wouldn't have broken any laws if he'd done that over here no so that the restrictions that we have in the u.s are just around uh public funding and fda approval and so we don't have other countries so there's a number of countries in europe that criminalize it and do have um, either hefty criminal fines and or imprisonment like 10 years in some countries imprisonment sentence um, but there have been just um, horrific research ethics um, atrocities in this country and I actually don't think that it would have been that much of a long-term scandal so I think it would have been a short-term media blip but I have to say five years down the line I think he would have been back in science and just signing paperwork differently um, okay I find that really depressing yeah <laughs> It's it's just my opinion because I've seen I've seen in a num a number of other different cases where there have been what I think are um, horrific outcomes in terms of protecting participants in research studies, and it comes down to um, I'm I'm not sure if it's good lawyers involved, but but it's framed as difference of opinion that the research is so important that it must be done and that it trumps these other considerations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm talking studies even recently in the past few years. Um, so I'm, I'm not as optimistic that the U.S. would have reacted the same way. And again, I think it comes down to a lot of the commercial motivations and the idea of the prestige behind it. Yeah, I mean, it, I think from the little I've read about him as a person, there's there have been claims that he clearly had his eyes on a Nobel Prize for being the first person to do this. And that, frankly, that's very sad <laughs> because he's not going to get anything as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, yeah, all the, the specialists in the field are absolutely mortified. And uh, it, what do you think would be the next steps from here then? Because um, you don't want people to just start doing this now after this guy has claimed that it's possible. I think it'll be a pause, and then I think whether or not he would have done this, I think it's going to be a pause, and I think the U.S. will kind of keep moving forward. And at the recent international summit, when this was part of the announcement going on, um, that's kind of the, the, um, the sentiment was, well, we will move forward, 
slowly, but everybody's in agreement that we are moving forward. And so what's interesting in, in the, the bioethics community, now there's been this divide of, well, wait a minute, who says we're moving forward? Who agreed, you know, where did that agreement come from? Um, so I think there's a minority, which I'm part of, that still says, um, we should not ever move forward, but I don't see that as being a dividing line anymore. I think mm-hmm. it is moving forward, unfortunately, unfortunately in my opinion, um, and that at, when it does move forward, it will be more uh, oversight in terms of paperwork, um, IRB approval, um, and you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because when. Uh, for example, cloning first came on the scene uh, with Dolly the sheep. So Dolly was a, a clone and was not kind of born through conception. Um, there was the same kind of outrage back then that, oh no, we're going to be cloning human babies now. And that doesn't seem to have happened. And it's, that's been, what is it now, over 20 years? So do you see something similar happening here? or? Do you think that people are hell-bent now on developing this technology? I think there's been a different response to this technology. So I think with cloning, um, and and I wasn't, um, you know, as much a part of the field mm-hmm. at, at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I joined the party a little after that. Um, but but with, with cloning, I think it was more of, let's see if we can do it. Um, you know, that kind of pushing pushing the boundaries. And I think the way that CRISPR has been described is it's almost in its own class that um, the rules don't apply, if that makes sense. And so much so that even particular laws that um, were designed very explicitly um, to prohibit um, engineering the human genome, making any type of modifi- modifications. Um, in, in the UK, um, the Nuffield Council had commissioned this special report. Um, so, to, you know, not, not to, to bore the listeners, but basically it was a legal scholar who combed through all of these, um, these documents, um, international treaties, laws of different countries, and she said, um, you know what, I don't think it was meant to apply in these situations because this technology is um, it's curing people, it's um, preventive medicine, like increasing resistance to HIV, and what's fascinating is that the Nuffield Council actually said, this is public health, We're, and we might have a duty to use it. Mm-hmm. That's how good it is. It's like clean water, right? We're helping our population. So it's really kind of turned on, on its head of, um, it's something kind of novel, let's see if we can do it, proof of principle, to this is the new medicine, this is the new public health, which I think is... Um, is really distorting um, number one the law but then also ignoring a lot of the other things that we have to make improvements to human health yeah i also don't necessarily see it being i suppose it could be quite cheap i think in the lab you can do it very cheaply so there's no reason for it necessarily to be expensive to do in uh, the clinic i guess and I think different countries might find ways around it in terms of, you know, if you look at financing for IVF, um, that, that has been a model, and um, where other countries might pay for IVF. Um, and I think the other thing to think about is that um, that has been raised, the, the point that people who have money might pay for it, and the people who don't might not be able to pay for it. Which is, I guess, it's the standard with medicine anyway. Right, right. Since David works a lot with biologists, he says the issue with CRISPR babies seems to be more about the technical issues of using a dirty technology that's not been explored. Um, but this is addressing the, the can we rather than the should we. What are your thoughts? So I think there's, um, you know, in the research that I've looked at and some, some of the... Um, the academics and bioethicists and scientists, um, I should say that I'm in the minority, again, of the, the community that says we 
might be able to, but it would not be effective, meaning um, we never know if it will be effective or safe, and we should not. Um, so based on not only safety and efficacy concerns, but I'm also interested in it from a human rights principle. Um, and so like I said, internationally, there's this really strong body of law um, that it's, it's designed to prevent situations exactly like this, where we distort um, the meaning behind the law of where we're treating um, embryos that will eventually be people. Um, it's not just um, embryos not for implantation for research purposes um, and we're creating potential mistakes or problems that we might not see until 20 30 years down the line and I think that's where the real tragedy is is if we create a whole generation of children and we realize when they're 20 30 40 that there is expedited aging or cancer or developmental mm -hmm. issues or infertility um, we're creating a whole new set of problems. Yeah, from a bioethical point of view, once the technology is out, can we do anything other than maybe slow down the adoption of it? Because obviously, if you know, if there are babies born using this technology, there's not a lot we can do about them per se. Mm -hmm. But is there anything we can do legally to try and um, alter the adoption of these texts? So I think the the first thing I would say is the countries. Um, um, that, that do have the specific laws in place, I think it's imperative um, that we interpret those laws with the intent as they were written. So these countries that say, we understand that there's a technological imperative, but we are putting our foot down um, and, and not permitting this kind of technology to be used on embryos for implantation, I think those laws should be interpreted as they were written and not distorted or circumvented. And I think that's one of the first steps. Um, and then I have to say that um, if the technology is, an adopted, is adopted in other places, um, part of what I think is important is communicating um, the, the very real risks um, that, that come with the technology and the alternatives um, mm. for preventing some of these types of diseases um, that, that um, the technology is being designed um, or talked about a, as a method of prevention because for many of them there are um, safer, less risky alternatives. Yeah. Um, another question he asks is that uh, what are the kind of bioethical questions you're considering that are not very prominent in the news? Oh, sure. So, um, in terms of um, in terms of this specific issue, no, any issue. All the because your work is obviously quite varied. Yes, um, it is. Is there something yeah. that kind of concerns you that you think doesn't get enough attention? Um, so, so there's been an, a number of issues. So we, we talked a, a lot about um, the, the genetics and genomic side of things tonight, um, but really a lot of what my research is looking at is um, this, um, this disconnect between what science is um, and, and what the law is and how to use the, um, the law as kind of this um, tool um, to understand what the public isn't being told about certain things. And so I've looked at this from a number of things, cases that have been in the news, um, like the Johnson & Johnson baby powder um, and litigation that was going on. Um, Can you explain what that is? Sure. So um, the and there's a couple of issues that, that, that tie in. So the first thing um, is that... Um, there was a number of lawsuits related to um, a women who had been using baby powder for decades and had subsequently developed ovarian cancer. And so they had brought lawsuits all over the country um, alleging that, um, that their cancer was um, uh, connected to their use of, of the baby powder and that it increased their risk of ovarian cancer. 
Um, so I, I've talked about that. Um, and I think what's important is that the legal process can kind of be this tool for uncovering um, basically all of the corporate secrets. So things that I always tell my students, if you don't want somebody to know, don't write it down in an email um, because somebody is going to find it. Um, or nowadays it's posted online somewhere, which a lot of these documents are. And so um, what, what we found out in a lot of these cases is that allegedly a number of these companies um, knew that uh, their products had some type of um, risk, health, um, you know, health risks associated with it and tried to downplay it. And there's dozens and dozens of documents um, showing um, allegedly how these companies um, did this and orchestrated a number of um, um, uh events to try and downplay their mm -hmm. products risks. So I've looked at it with the Johnson and Johnson's baby powder. I've looked at it with, um, uh, Monsanto's Roundup. Um, and why this is important is because I think in general, people think that if something's on the store shelf, it's safe, right? Somebody's looking at it and making sure it's safe for me. And so part of what I'm trying to do is not scare people, but say there's gaps in the law. And so here's information so that you can make maybe different choices and know that the law isn't necessarily protecting you um, and here's what we can do to change it um, and to have more information about really how people are being manipulated mm -hmm. um, sometimes by the media and sometimes by fake information. Yeah. Um, I mean, are there consumer rights groups that you can follow to get this information? Because it seems like unless there's someone kind of curating it all, it is. It's incredibly difficult um, to, to understand um, and to follow some of these news stories. Um, so, for the um, if people are interested in um, in safer cosmetic products, and when I say cosmetics, I'm not just talking about you know the lipstick I've got on, but it's also shaving cream, aftershave, perfume, cologne, baby shampoo that had um, different um, uh, types of formaldehyde in it, um, and, and you think I'm using this on my baby. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I had people saying that to me after I did this work, and they said, you know, I'm, I'm switching what I'm using. So um, the campaign for safe cosmetics is actually a really good resource. Um, and then if people are interested in following any of what was going on with Roundup and all of the lawsuits related to cancer, um, allegations that the particular product um, caused people's cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, they can look at the website US Right to Know or read the book Whitewash. It's an excellent book by a journalist, Carrie Gillum, um, that, that talks a little bit about um, the allegations and what was going on in some of the lawsuits. Um, and both of those are either articles or forthcoming articles as well. All right, so we have with us today Diane and Charlotte. So, Diane, what would you like to know? What the science community does, but what about all the stuff that the science community and the public doesn't know? Because the secret programs and the government, they're there. And they will, I'm not conspiracy, I had a top secret clearance for 30 years, so um, I just wonder what the government's doing that can be, can be regulated, legally. On, on the topic of, of um, CRISPR, um, there is actually, if you look up um, on DARPA's website, so the Department of Defense, um, and, and look at some of the, the projects that they're doing, that's actually one of their projects is to engineer human soldiers. Um, and that's something that, that's posted online, right? So so we we don't know what's, um, you know, what's actually going on, right? Um, but, but I think it comes down to, you know, we have to ask ourselves, number one, as a society, um, what kind of um, United States do we want to live in in terms of um, what's more important, right? Scientific prestige, um, you know, commercial potential of a particular technology, stronger, faster soldiers, um, or do we want to honor people's humanity? And I think there's something that's lost when we start um, pushing, specifically pushing the bounds of law, distorting what the law means or is supposed to mean um, 
for whatever the end goal is. And so part of what my work is trying to look at is, I would say, um, identifying and then exposing what some of these stakeholders' interests are. And oftentimes it is either um, uh, financial influences, um, scientific prestige, and in some case, it's simply constrained by politics. Um, and I think an excellent example of that would be um, the, the fight with big tobacco. Um, David Kessler, former commissioner of the FDA, had an excellent book um, on that particular topic. And even as commissioner of the FDA, was entangled in trying to regulate um, big tobacco. Um, so it's it's a complicated question, but I think it's one where we really have to assess, um, you know, what what do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want to live in? Um, there are definitely a lot more groups, I think, who are trying to make sure that um, when uh, representatives are going up for election, that we know what their viewpoints are with regards to their, their kind of scientific views and how they actually consider the environment and their constituents when they're making their decisions and how much lobbying plays a part into mm -hmm. that. So um, I completely agree that obviously we, we want people to be more science literate and there, so specifically there's um, a non-profit called Science Debate if you look up they are raising money not to they're not partisan in any way so what they do is they just have a series of questions that they ask each politician and the ones who obviously answer they let people know um, but it's it's to help people make better decisions when they're voting for candidates if that's what their priorities are um, so we've been talking a lot about uh, the specifics of your work what is it that you attracted you to bioethics in the first place given that it's not necessarily a common path for someone <laughs> with a legal background it, it's not so actually the it comes full circle because when I was um, when I was in school years ago um, the topic that really grabbed my attention um, was there was actually two topics. One was um, secret government programs and, and missions. So for a while, I thought I would be a CIA agent. That that dream was on the wayside. Um, and then the second thing that really grabbed my attention was um, actually um, modifying the human germline. And I thought, well, you know, if this happens in the future, how can I make the most impact um, and and actually? have a job right something that pays the bills um, which is essential um, so I thought okay well maybe I'll go to law school um, and you know and be part of the, the legal process and looking at the laws that permit restrict um, or you know uh, uh, work um, to to change if there's something um, that, that I see that that isn't working oh there's one last project that um, you you work on that we haven't brought up and that's uh, the subject of physician-assisted suicide, which is also a very contentious issue. <laughs> uh, so, so this is interesting. Um, first of all, I, it's not a full project. Years ago, I had um, uh, done a debate on it and then never really picked it back up. And so um, a few months ago, um, when Hawaii um, was one of the few states to pass a law permitting physician-assisted suicide, I thought, well, I'm going to look at what, um, what Hawaii's law is, um, you know, and coming at it from this uh, legal perspective. Um, and, and so I looked at some of what the components of the law were. Um, and this is something, again, just like when we're talking about issues, um, you know, other types of health issues that affect so many people because we either have a parent or a grandparent that has gone through kind of these end-of-life um, uh, stages um, and, and trying to understand and discern um, what's what's the most appropriate way to help my loved one um, through, through this last stage of life. And so... Um, just in the past 10 years, I would say, there's been a very um, assertive push, um, lobbying push from a number of advocacy groups um, trying to promote um, model legislation in, in a number of states for physician-assisted suicide. Um, and um, so it's curious to me when it's um, from a particular lobbying group rather than an inherent motion uh, from, from patients. 
um, which um, which concerns me a little bit, frankly. Um, and so, based on the research that I've seen, um, I have a number of concerns with uh, transparency, um, and especially when we're dealing with um, people who are um, potentially elderly and vulnerable um, that uh, may have a number of family members um, um, or uh, wanting a particular outcome, um, I, I have concerns that um, the, the person um, at the end of his or her life um, may feel like a burden and may feel um, uh, inclined to accept a particular um, uh, life-ending medication um, out of a sense of duty or obligation. And so um, based on some of the, the things that I saw in the law in terms of um, requirements for psychiatric evaluation, um, Hawaii's law was, was really pushed as this um, you know, kind of top-notch, um, better than other laws that existed, that there's more protections. Um, and from what I read, I'm I'm not convinced. Um, I, I still have a number of concerns um, because um, the law actually prohibits investigation of um, of deaths that occurred, um, and on the um, the uh, the uh, record of death, it's not recorded as a suicide. It's recorded as natural causes. Uh -huh. So when you change um, the ability of people to follow up, what actually happened? Was this this person's own decision? Um, did he or she actually want to ingest the medication? Um, I have a number of concerns about vulnerable populations and the transparency of it. Um, and the the bottom line is, I think that we we do a very poor job in our country, in the United States, of supporting people at the end of life and just elderly people in general of saying. You have value. You have meaning. Um, you've contributed to society, and you're a meaningful human being. Not that it's a good thing, but America is not alone in this. So, you know, yes, um, that's probably some minor consolation to you. But what then can people do if they are concerned about laws like this that get passed? Who do they go to? So I think this is one thing, if people want to get involved, you had mentioned this about voting, um, because every so often this comes up um, in legislatures across the United States where there are particular um, groups, either way, um, depending on how people feel, if they think that, th that this is a good option um, and would want this for either themselves or their, their loved ones, or if they think, you know what, I also have concerns and I see the potential for exploitation, um, this is an issue where people go and vote and they have their voices heard. On that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for your time with us today. It's been really informative and um, I certainly don't think you're going to be lacking for work anytime soon. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. So I, I think my kids are hilarious, most other people don't, but this one actually comes from, from one of my kids. I have three boys and um, we were going to a wedding the other day and my son said, I was, I was trying to explain to them about the wedding, of first you have the ceremony and then you have the reception, you know, best behavior boys, right? Because they're rambunctious. And so my oldest son said, well, when is the part when they have the terms and conditions? I said, do you mean the vows? Well, yeah, you either agree to it or you don't. I said, those are the vows. But I thought, this is, you know, he, he has an attorney as a mother. If he's talking about, you know, a ceremony of love and when are the terms and conditions, you agree or you don't, that's it. You know, like it's a, it's a contract. So um, I'm, I'm raising them well, I'm trying, but definitely an attorney as a mother.
thanks to Catherine and to our audience of two, Diane and Charlotte, who came and froze sitting outside at the World of Beer just to be there for this live recording. Huge thanks also go out to Sunsigns, friends of Angela who donated this fabulously titled track, Dopeless Hope Fiend. We hope to catch them live in Tampa Bay soon. As always, thanks to you for listening. Next week will sadly be the last episode in this season, so stay tuned for more details. Oh